Hey. We've all heard about the climate crisis. Some people are taking action. While some people have their heads in the sand. Hurricane Maria slamming into the island and as- At least 25 wildfires are burning across California alone. There is no man-made climate change. I don't think science knows, actually. Where's the proof? That's where we come in. You're listening to House on Fire, a podcast about the climate crisis where we bring those leading the fight to you. We're two activists coming to you from Ground Zero, Miami, Florida, sharing the facts so you can become informed and engaged in this movement. And our show, House on Fire, is powered by the Clio Institute, a nonprofit organization dedicated to climate change education, awareness, and advocacy. I'm JP. And I'm Gabby. Welcome to House on Fire. Hey, everybody. So for today's episode of House on Fire, we're doing something a little bit different. JP's actually out of town, so instead we brought on board our good friend, Sammy Gazda. Hi. Hey, Sammy. So you might remember her. She was a guest on our show for one of our first episodes. Hi, everyone. I'm Sammy. I'm 17, and I've been a climate organizer in South Florida for almost two years, and I'm so excited to be back on the podcast. We're super excited to have you back. So today we're actually going to talk about something that we're all too familiar with, and that's disinformation around climate change. But before we do that, I actually want to talk about what happened in Texas a few weeks ago and just ground us in the moment, because I feel like what happened in Texas really relates back to the topic of today's show. So what exactly happened? Honestly, that's the confusing part. Like. We all know that extreme weather caused the energy system in Texas to fail, but multiple figureheads on TV told different stories and blamed different people or conditions. It was all around an unclear and confusing mess. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it was super confusing and hard to understand, but there's got to be at least somewhat of a solid answer as to why exactly people lost their electricity and why people lost their running water. Like, what were the real reasons for this? Why were there so many lies circulating? And why was it so damn hard to understand? I think that's the whole point. There were so many different streams of quote-unquote information around the news. Renewable energy and the Green New Deal were attacked, but who's surprised? While some information was just straight-up false. Mm -hmm. I think the real question here is, why were those lies circulating and in whose best interest? Because it clearly wasn't in the best interest of Texans struggling in the middle of that crisis. Right. Right. And like what happened in Texas was a super clear example of what happens when we depend on an unreliable energy system. And I'm talking about burning fossil fuels, especially as extreme weather becomes more and more common under the climate crisis. But what happened in Texas was also a clear example of how people in power keep spreading lies and they're not owning up to the failures of burning fossil fuels. Right. But I'm getting ahead of myself, right? Like why all the lies and how are they so effective? Luckily, I think we found somebody who can help us answer those questions. Yep. Today, we're talking to one of the world's most renowned climate scientists and communicators, and he actually sits on the Clio Institute's Expert Advisory Council. He's known for contributing to our understanding of climate change by examining the Earth's temperature record over the past thousand years, and he's got a new book about what we're talking about today, Fossil Fuel Funded Disinformation, Denial, and Delay. Awesome. I can't wait. Welcoming Dr. Michael Mann. Hi, Dr. Mann. Sammy and I are super excited to have you on today. Hi. Hello. It's great to be with you guys. Awesome to have you here. All right. So let's get into it. Um, So obviously, as one of the world's leading climate scientists, you're definitely no stranger to climate denial. It's safe to say that you've been on the front lines of fighting it for your entire career. But before we jump into the nitty gritty of climate disinformation and denial and all of that, um, I really just want to know 
when you realized this was an emergency. You know, you've you've been working in this science for quite a while now. And I'm wondering if there was ever a moment where you looked at it and you were like, wow, we are definitely living in an emergency. Yeah, I would say over the last uh, decade, really, when, you know, not only did the signal, as we say, emerge from the noise, which is to say we could see the impact of climate change, the impact it was already having, um, but that it, those impacts were playing out in, in a profound way, and unprecedented heat waves and wildfires and, you know, superstorms, floods that have really sort of vivified the, the climate crisis um, and made it very clear that this isn't some far-off distant threat it is you know uh, it, it is you know a matter of us already now dealing with dangerous climate change impacts and at this point you know by some measure dangerous climate change has arrived and it's a matter of how bad we're willing to let it get and so indeed uh, there is great urgency in acting now given you know the fact that we are already seeing those impacts play out in real time right Right. For sure. So I wanted to talk about your new book, The New Climate War, where you introduce the powerful Ds, which were disinformation, deceit, divisiveness, deflection, delay, despair mongering, and doomism. I was wondering if you could walk us through each of those tactics. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so, you know, first of all, you know, the, the point of the book is that denial, outright denial of climate change, denial of the science, d- denial of the evidence is, you know, that's what I describe as the, the old climate war, the effort by fossil fuel interests and those promoting their agenda to try to discredit um, the, the, the scientific evidence. And that's just not possible anymore because the impacts are and so visible and, and, and so obvious to the person on the street. But that doesn't mean that the forces of inaction, what I call the inactivists in, in the book, have rolled over, have given up. They've just engaged in this whole new array of tactics um, in their effort to keep us addicted to fossil fuels and to slow down this necessary transition off fossil fuels towards a, a clean energy economy. So, you know, uh, among those tactics are efforts to uh, deflect attention uh, from the needed systemic changes, uh, policies that will, you know, disincentivize fossil fuels and incentivize renewable energy, um, carbon pricing, subsidies for renewable for uh, renewables, um, blocking new, additional new fossil fuel infrastructure, um, all these things that we need our politicians to do, we need our policymakers to do because we can't do these things ourselves. Right. Um, it's been very convenient for fossil fuel interests to try to deflect attention away from those measures, which will ultimately hurt their profits, hurt their bottom line, and instead make it out to be you know, a problem that falls entirely upon us as individuals. Um, That, you know, the solution isn't policies to shift us away from fossil fuels. It's just a matter of us, you know, changing our diet and changing our modes of transportation, et cetera. So it's this sort of deflection away from the needed systemic changes towards individual behavior. at the same time, they're trying to divide climate advocates, um, you know, online in particular, social media, uh, sort of creating a divisive 
atmosphere and social media using bots and, and trolls. And one of the ways they do that, in fact, is to get us finger pointing at each other over our individual lifestyle choices. Because what's more personal uh, than, you know, your, your lifestyle choices? And if they can get us sort of carbon shaming each other and pointing fingers at each other, then we no longer represent a united front demanding change. Yeah. Uh, they've pro- uh, proposed um, false solutions. Uh, again, deflecting attention away from the the real solutions to geoengineering or carbon capture and sequestration, anything to keep us addicted to fossil fuels, because that's the bottom line. They don't care why we remain addicted to fossil fuels. They just want us addicted to them. And that leads to uh, yet another tactic that they have employed, another D word, doomism or despair mongering, uh, convincing us that it's too late to do anything about the problem. Because again, ironically, that leads us down the same path of inaction as outright denial. And so to some extent, they've sort of fanned the flames of doomism. Um, this, uh, and it's really a way to disengage environmental advocates. If you really believe that you know, runaway warming has begun and there's nothing we can do to stop it, and there's no scientific evidence for that, but you do encounter people who are convinced of that, convinced it's too late, we've gone past the tipping point, et cetera, um, that, that leads to disengagement. And, and right. what's so pernicious, it leads to disengagement, not, say, by political conservatives who have traditionally been sort of more averse to climate action, but actually progressives, people who would otherwise be on the front lines demanding action, but have become disengaged because they've fallen to doom and despair. And so we have to be aware that good people, people with the best of intentions get caught up in that. They are sort of victims of that framing, but that framing is being fed by you know, bad actors, by the inactivists. And so The real point here of the book is that we are so close to finally seeing the action that is necessary, and that's due to the the great work, the organizing, uh, what Clio has done in in Florida, and what all, all, you know, environmental uh, groups and advocates, um, you know, we've made some real progress. The political winds are blowing in our favor here in the United States now. we're so close, and yet we still have these obstacles in our way, and, and they're sort of uh, very, um, you know, the, these, these are insidious obstacles, because yeah. it's not the old tactics of denial, which were obvious. It's these more subtle efforts to lead us towards disengagement and to keep us addicted to fossil fuels. So that, that's really the, the point of the book, is we need to recognize these tactics, we need to fight back against them, uh, precisely because we are so close. Um, there is great urgency, as I like to say, clearly, in acting now, but there is agency. It's not too late for us to act. Definitely. Yeah, wow. Thank you so much for explaining all of that. That was, that was it, it's, you know, like we've, um, you know, climate Misinforma- disinformation and denial is something that us who work in this movement as advocates or scientists or policymakers, you know, we're aware that it exists and, and we know it's something that we have to go against, but it's so, yeah. um, it's, it's so nice to see, or not maybe nice, but it's, you know, it's beneficial obviously to see that those tactics, although they're there, we can identify them, right? And, and we can 
pinpoint the ways to go against them. And one of them that you just said that really struck a chord with me are tactics that are used to divide climate advocates within the movement. And you know, this this show is really, it's about the climate crisis, but it's a youth-led podcast that's, that's meant to um, help drive the climate movement. It's by the youth, for yeah. the youth. And so I, I hope, you know, a little later in this conversation, we can touch upon that as well. But for now, um, I, I just, I want to take a second to kind of ground us in what has happened over the past few weeks, particularly in Texas. Because only a few weeks ago, you know, we saw that Texas got hit by temperatures that were described as once in a century. You know, millions of Texans, they were endangered by by this weather and, and they lost power, they lost running water. But then you see the most prominent elected officials from Texas take social media and and national media outlets and they say the cold temperatures indicated that climate change doesn't exist, right? Or that, you know, renewable energy was actually to blame for the power crisis. Um, And so I definitely wanted to bring this up because I think it's incredibly relevant. It's like a real life example of what we're talking about today. So I would love if you could explain to us in a little bit more detail what actually happened in Texas, right? Like, why exactly did politicians attack renewable energy? And, and what should our, our listeners know about that situation? Yeah, so it's really cynical. I mean, frankly, you have some politicians in Texas, um, Greg Abbott, their governor, who are beholden to the fossil fuel industry, who were elected by the fossil fuel industry, and are a rubble, rubber stamp for the fossil fuel industry. And so rather than representing the interests of the people, they're, they're representing the interests of the fossil fuel industry in a very cynical way. And so they're lying to the, I mean, there's no better word, no more appropriate word for it. Um, they're, they're lying to the public about the cause. And, and it's an effort to distract and de- deflect, once again, attention from the real cause. Uh, the real problem here was that conservative Texas politicians who don't you know, believe in government regulation of energy Um, So they're anti-regulation, and they literally disconnected their grid from the rest of the national grid because if they were part of the the national grid, they would have been subject to federal federal, uh, regulations. And so they cut themselves off. They isolated themselves. They were too dependent on fossil fuels, on natural gas, and it was actually their natural gas infrastructure that failed. Um, so, in fact, the problem was, A, they haven't taken steps to sort of deal with, you know, they're too busy denying climate change. Texas Republicans have been too busy denying climate change to actually do anything about it, to take any adaptive measures to help deal with more extreme weather events that uh, threaten their infrastructure. And so they were unprepared. They hadn't uh, weatherized their energy infrastructure. Um, They uh, refused to um, be connected to the national grid because of their, um, and when I say they didn't want regulation, they didn't want uh, other sources of energy. Um, coming in, they 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 want uh, to continue to you know sell fossil fuels in the state of Texas, and so they isolated themselves from the national network, which increasingly is becoming greener, is becoming more and more uh, dominated by renewable energy sources. They didn't want that, <laughs> so they isolated themselves. They were reliant on natural gas. That natural gas supply and infrastructure failed them because of extreme weather events in this case, an extreme weather event that probably has 
that was worsened by climate change. Uh, right. There is some evidence that climate change is changing the pattern of, of the winter jet stream in a way that allows these very cold air masses from the Arctic to sort of break away and sort of descend to lower latitudes into places like Texas. So it was a perfect storm of denial and, um, and incompetence. And rather than owning up to that, um, they sought to deflect attention by, you know, what's called projection, saying the opposite of what is true mm. in an effort to distract sort of the public. Um, the real problem was their, 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 their opposition to being part of the national uh, you know, grid um, and their uh, over-reliance on old fossil fuel infrastructure they didn't want to admit that. So instead, they blamed renewable energy because, of course, renewable energy to, to these conservative politicians is the enemy. It's the right. solution. It's what gets us off of fossil fuels. And so the most cynical move of all was their effort to blame renewable energy. And it was a lie. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. It was a lie. Renewable energy, solar and wind actually met their commitments uh, during, uh, through that event. It was wow. their fossil fuel energy infrastructure that that collapsed and you know what did they do what did ted cruz do he he flew off to mexico when the rest of the people in his state um were suffering i've sort of jokingly said it's it's an example of environmental refugeeism right um yeah. in this case ted, ted but, but but this sort of environmental refugeeism is something that's available to you if you're a person of privilege with lots of money and you can fly off with your family to um, you know, or a, a, a more hospitable uh, climate when your own climate fails you, and that's there were there are just so many ways um, in which this event crystallized everything that's wrong with our reliance on fossil fuel interests and conservative politicians who are blocking the clean energy transition. A hundred percent. So these same people who depend on the continued use of fossil fuels to keep their pockets lined, they also are continuing to rely on climate disinformation, which brings me into greenwashing, which is a type of disinformation that pleases the environmental and climate communities. So I was wondering if you could explain what greenwashing is and whether you think it can be classified as disinformation. Yeah, you know, greenwashing is a long-standing tradition by, I mean, we, greenwashing specifically refers to, um, you know, fossil fuel companies taking environmentally friendly um, measures when, in fact, um, they're not, um, but they're using their public relations and advertising to try to put a public face forward that is green, that is pro-environmental, while their policies are just the opposite. In other words, uh, they're talking the talk but not walking the walk. And, you know, it's not coincidental that British Petroleum, uh, back in the early 2000s, gave us the first individual carbon footprint calculator. Gets back to what I was saying before, because they wanted us so focused on our carbon footprint that we didn't notice theirs. And a uh, hundred fossil fuel companies are responsible for seventy percent of the world's carbon emissions. So that's the fingerprint. The you know the, the the that that's the footprint that we should really be focused on. While you know doing things we can do in our everyday lives to to minimize our own individual carbon footprint, we should all do those things. But we can't let them off the hook um, for uh, for not you know doing their part. And so you do see these advertising campaigns where the fossil fuel companies talk about 
all of the wonderful research that they're doing into alternative fuels, etc. But meanwhile, if you look not at what they're saying, but what they're doing, um, they're still overwhelmingly investing in new fossil fuel, extracting uh, you know fossil fuels. So we have to hold them accountable. Um, we right. can't get them uh, let them get away with that. We have to call out greenwash for, for what it is because it's once again sort of example of deflection. And in an age when climate change denial just isn't credible, they know they can't get away with it, this is one of the insidious tactics that they've used, pretending they're part of the solution when in fact they're still part of the problem. Right. Yeah. And it, you know, how you just mentioned greenwashing there, it ties me back to the thought I had earlier about tactics that um, create division within the climate community. Because you'll see there's not only is there a spectrum of climate support, but there's also a spectrum of, uh, you know, opinions and different support yeah. around different solutions within the actual climate community. And so yeah. I, I see greenwashing as one of those things that that does that, um, along with— That's right. um, yeah, along with uh, things within the movement that, you know, make us carbon shame each other and shame each other's lifestyles. And um, yeah. on that, you know, I think this is a perfect time then for me to ask, you know, we know this exists, right? Within the actual movement. How do we, how do we, what are the specific ways to tackle those particular weapons from the fossil fuel industry that are directed towards climate advocates, that are directed towards me and Sammy and all the people who listen to this, what, what are the ways that we as climate activists um, can, you know, detect that and, and yeah. fight it back? Yeah, and that's, you know, something that I really try to do in, in the new climate war is to provide sort of a blueprint for how we fight back, how we win the war, as it were. Um, and that, you know, includes, uh, for example, disregarding the doomsayers, I say in the book. Um, don't fall into uh, doom um, and despair because that just leads to disengagement. Uh, and there is, you know, the science is actually provides reason for cautious optimism. The, the science shows that if we do decarbonize, you know, our civilization um, quickly, then the warming of the surface of the planet stabilizes fairly quickly as well. So there is a direct and immediate impact of our efforts to reduce carbon emissions. And we can avert the worst climate change impacts uh, by acting now. Um, that's the agency uh, that I talked about before, but there's also the urgency. So disregard the doomsayers. Um, and uh, one of the other things um, is, uh, you know, listen to the voice of the children. Um, you know, the youth climate movement uh, has been extremely powerful for, to me for one particular reason. There are many reasons, but to me what's so powerful about it is that it recenters the conversation on ethics because for too long we've allowed it to be framed in terms of economics and to be framed really in a misleading way by economics because if, if you really do the economics of this, the cost of inaction is far greater than the cost of taking action. So even the economics, uh, if done properly tell us to act immediately and dramatically. But we've allowed it to be framed sort of in a very technocratic way, um, cost-benefit analysis, scientific projections, etc. When more than anything else, this is an issue of ethics. Um, and it's an issue of intergenerational ethics, us not leaving behind a degraded planet 
for our children and grandchildren. And the youth climate movement has really brought that to the surface. But it's also recentered uh, the discussion on ethics more generally, on, on issues of justice. And, and it's become part of the larger conversation we're now having about how we create a, a more just uh, world, um, a more equitable world. And in that manner, it's really playing into where the energy is right now when it comes to the larger sort of progressive movement. Uh, and so that's very powerful. Uh, we have to listen to the voice of the children, but we can't allow it to fall on them, right? Because uh, it's uh, us adults who are in a position to actually implement change. And it's critical that um, yet the efforts of the youth who have you know, marched and protested around the world um, it's, it's essential that their efforts not be in vain. They've opened a door for us. The rest of us have to walk through that door now. Um, I talk about also um, uh, education, 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 not so much arguing with climate change deniers because there really aren't that many of them. Um, the latest polling by uh, Yale University and George Mason University suggests they're in the single digits. Maybe 8% of the public is in that category that you would call dismissive, but they have a voice that's out of proportion with their numbers because of the conservative echo chamber um, that sort of promotes denialism and, and that sort of messaging. So recognize there, it's not really worth spending all your time and emotional effort arguing with climate change deniers because they're not going to change in general. They're already ingrained in their views. Um, they view uh, the issue from an ideological uh, standpoint rather than you know a logical standpoint, and it's very difficult to convince them to change their ways or you know uh, change their views. But there is a much larger sector of the population that aren't climate change deniers. They don't. They they do accept the science, but they're just not convinced either that it's all that much of a problem or that we can do anything about it. And to me, that's where our efforts to educate are most important because with more knowledge about why it is, you know, why it's urgent to act now and why we can act now, we can move those folks into the sort of next category, which is the engaged um, people who are not only, you know, not only accept that there is a climate crisis, but are motivated to try to do something about it. And so... In the end, you know, where I come down is that a whole bunch of things have come together right now. The youth climate movement, the, the very visceral impacts of climate change that have sort of awakened us um, to the, the reality that this is here and now and we must act now. Uh, a pandemic, which, you know, as awful as it is, as much a tragedy as it is, has taught us some important lessons um, about, you know, the sustainability of our existence on this planet, for one thing, and the importance of listening to what science has to offer when it comes to the crises we face, uh, be it the pandemic uh, or the even greater crisis in the long term, the climate crisis. So all these things have come together to sort of, and, and with the shift, you know, this positive shift in political winds now with the, the Biden administration now really you know, making some bold efforts on climate um, and, you know, the possibility even of, of congressional climate legislation, this is our time and we can't allow ourselves to become, 
you know, to be blocked by the obstacles that the inactivists are trying to throw in our path. And that's what really what, what, what the book is about, recognizing those obstacles, uh, recognizing, you know, that it isn't too late, and, and pushing back at all these, um, you know, efforts to prevent us from moving on. Right. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you for explaining all of that. And it's like, I really like the part where you had mentioned how, because something that we talk about a lot too, or we think about a lot too in this work is, who is it worth speaking to when it comes to climate denialism, especially within our loved ones yeah. and our public sphere? Like, where is it worth talking to people that are so far off? Like, how do we pick our battles? And I think right. that the last thing that hasn't been mentioned um, but it is important because at the end of the day, we care about our loved ones and our friends is, you know, right. what do we what do we do when we know people we care about have fallen to these tactics that you've explained to us so yeah. greatly? How do we go yeah. about having conversations with them and um, making sure that, you know, we don't <laughs> we don't uh, hinder our relationships with them at the same time as well? Yeah, it's it's a great point, and and it comes in two places in particular where it intersects with you know the tactics of the new climate war that are being used against us um, on the doomism front, right? Because there are people of, of good intentions, good-hearted people who fall victim to the doomist framing, um, and and have become disengaged because of it. Uh, for some, you know, we have to recognize that. That's, it can be a coping mechanism. It can be a stage. Um, and so recognize that they're not the enemy. They're the victims. And friends uh, of ours, family members, uh, colleagues, people we know, good people who fall victim to the despair, first of all, we have to point out to them gently that the scientific premise upon which many of these doomist narratives are based is just not valid. And it's in some ways there's... The, the, the misrepresentations of science on the doomist side are almost as bad as the misrepresentations of the science on the denialist side. The, the idea, for example, that we're already undergoing runaway warming and all life on Earth will be gone in 10 years no matter what we do. There are sort of uh, prophets of doom, you know, who uh, are literally saying these things and, 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 and good people are taken in by it. So first of all, we have to explain to them why the science tells us actually that it's not too late, that we can prevent catastrophic warming. We can avoid one and a half degrees Celsius warming, three degrees Fahrenheit warming of the planet if we ramp our carbon emissions down quickly enough. We can prevent things from uh, getting worse. We, there is no runaway warming. Um, there is no evidence of uh, massive methane releases, for example, which is uh, one of the things that the doomist, uh, the doomist sort of say that there is all this methane that's being released from the uh, Arctic and it's causing right. runaway warming and it's too late to do anything. There's not, not a shred of evidence for that. Um, there is an increase in methane concentrations, and it's not natural. It's coming from fossil fuels. It's coming from natural gas extraction, uh, fracking. <laughs> so the, the irony is that what they're pointing to is actually a reason for even more dramatic action. Um, right. We've got to... Right. You know, that, you know, so, so making sure that, first of all, you undercut the flawed premise for that doom... And then once you've done that, help them past that. Maybe that's a stage 
you know, they just sort of feel like they need to go through um, mm-hmm. and uh, sort of as they come to terms with the, the grief that, um, that, they, that, that they face over, you know, understandably over the fact that we haven't yet seen the action that's necessary. But don't let them get stuck in that stage. Definitely. Allow it to be part of an evolution that leads them back down the path of engagement. Definitely. And that's, yeah. So, and, and the one other thing then I wanted to talk about on that, you know, uh, in that regard was the individual versus collective action, systemic change. Um, very important. Yes, let's do all those things that we can do in our everyday lives. And I don't eat meat and uh, we, I, we uh, drive a plug-in hybrid vehicle. Uh, we get our power from uh, renewable energy, uh, wind. Um, and, you know, we've done all these things in our, my family and I in our own lives to reduce our carbon footprint. But, but I don't go around shaming others. Um, I, instead, I try to gently <laughs> be an example to gently lead them in that direction to explain why, hey, I've done these things. And I feel better, uh, you know, um, with this shift in diet. And I feel better about myself that I'm taking these actions. So more carrot and less stick. Because we try to use the stick, carbon shaming our friends and family members and colleagues, it's going to backfire. We know that. There's enough psychological research to, to demonstrate that. So in both cases, we're engaging with people, good hearted people who want to be part of the solution and they've been misled. And we have to help them get back on that more constructive path. Um, we don't want to alienate them. And we certainly, you know, because they, they can become part of the solution. Let's help them do that. Right. Yeah. I, I love that last thing. Yeah, like not only overcoming the doom, but people, whether they fall into it or not, people, this is our planet, right? We all share the same, the same planet, yeah. the same resources. Whether um, we recognize it or not, we all should want to be part of the solution because this is all a problem exactly. that we're facing under. And I think for for some, especially those that we particularly care about more, it's worth the effort to find how to um, help them overcome that moment of doom for sure. Because once you enter that stage of engagement and action, it's, it's absolutely everything. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Mann, for talking with us. Um, that was incredibly insightful and I know I got a lot out of how we can move <laughs> forward against uh, disinformation and well, denial. I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks so much, Sammy, well, for joining us today. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. And thank thanks, you to guys. Everyone. No, really, really enjoyed talking. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dr. Mann. Thank you. Wow, that was super insightful. And I know I got a lot out of how we can move forward against the lies about climate change. So Sammy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me again. I had so much fun, especially talking to Dr. Michael Mann. And thank you to everyone for listening to House on Fire, a youth-led climate podcast founded by the Clio Institute and powered by sponsors like you. Find us on Instagram at House on Fire Podcast, on Twitter at House on Fire Pod, and listen to House on Fire on all your favorite platforms for podcasts. See you soon.